Can we give God the praise? Can we give God the praise? Let us pray. Dear gracious God, we give you the praise. We give you all the praise. And we thank you to God for the opportunity to hear your word. May your word, dear God, bring life and light to all of us. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. It is truly an honor to be here with your President Hagen, with my former student, Reverend Josh Edmonds, and with all of you and those that I've met. I've been asked, to, if we could so you see the slide up now, has William uh, Joseph Seymour. And so I'm going to do a little bit of Bible talk and a little bit of history talk, if that's okay. So this won't be a, a regular sermon, but it won't be a regular history lesson. I'll go in between the two. Um, my title, though, was a really provocative one, and I, I didn't want to give it to President Hagen before I came because he might have then canceled my appointment. Revival to revolution. Now, I'm not talking about a political revolution. I'm not talking about a violent revolution. I'm not talking about an armed revolution. I'm talking about, in my church, we call it a Holy Ghost revolution. A revolution led by the Holy Spirit. Next slide, please. And so in this revolution led by the Holy Spirit, we have this text. And can someone read this text for me? It's Acts chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 7. Don't want to read it. I'll read it myself. I'll continue. And we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamus, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. We're here to talk about this text and to talk about William Seymour. Next slide. And in talking about William Seymour, we need to know that this is a man who was used by God. Next slide. And in knowing that this man by used by God, we need to realize that William Seymour was an unlikely candidate to lead a revival. Now, you need to know that William Seymour was not a big fish in any pond, small, non-existent. So if you, have, if you were in a classroom, William Seymour was the student and not the teacher. If you were at a church revival, he was one of the people listening. He wasn't the preacher. You need to realize that he wasn't even at the church on the paid staff. He was on the volunteer staff that people didn't even use the volunteers. He was somebody who was unlikely to lead a revival. I'm not sure if prior to the Zeusry revival, if he ever preached in front of more than 25 people in his whole life. He is an unlikely candidate for leading a revival. 
But you know, this text in Acts 6 is really, I think, maybe the second Pentecost. And the reason why it's the second Pentecost is because those that are unlikely to lead, guess what? Those are the ones that God chooses. Those that are unlikely to be the ones that will be in the forefront are the ones that God chooses. So William Seymour is not only unlikely in that regard, but William Seymour was an African-American who was, who was part of predominantly white movements, whether it's the Catholic Church or predominantly white holiness movement. And so he was a person who was often segregated against and discriminated against. And so the one who's discriminated against is the one that God decides to use. Next slide. It's not only then is he unlikely, but the Zusa Street revival occurs at 312 Azusa Street. And it is the unlikely revival to lead to a worldwide movement, to a global movement. Why do you say that? Because you can see there, this is not a cathedral. This was a church that became a stable, that became the site of revival. This, 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 this was a place that had 24-hour prayer. This wasn't a university like North Central University. This was a place that had people who were religious minorities. They were holiness or holy runners or holy jumpers or, or other things, but they were not part of the predominant elite. This was not the place that one would expect a revival, but you can see that on the next slide, that you have, next slide, that you have over um, 50 countries within three years. You know, some of your students for four, that means in the first three years of your time at North Central, the Lord can send a revival to 50 other nations. Can we praise God? That before you even graduate, revival becomes a global movement. And not merely one in North America or South America, but you can see it's on every continent, including Australia, way down under. Next slide, please. But not only is William Seymour the unlikely candidate to to lead a revival, not only is the apostolic faith mission at 312 Azusa Street the unlikely place to become a global movement, but this was an unlikely movement to have a global impact. You ask why? Because this movement that God took an unlikely candidate surprised us all as historians and anybody who might have been alive in the 1950s, that this revival that was often associated with storefronts and uh, outbacks and tents and sawdust trails, this revival in the 1950s breaks into the Episcopal Church and then the Catholic Church, and then the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Lutheran Church, the Orthodox Church, the Quakers, the Mennonites, almost every Christian denomination will have a Pentecostal revival after the 1950s. This is an unlikely movement to have a global impact. But God chose those who were of no power to have Holy Ghost power. Those of, uh, who were not graduates of the elite schools to be able to confound even those that were wise. Those who didn't see, but not only that, not only that, not only that. Can you say not only that? But one of the amazing things about this revival is that at this time in 1906, the church was often organized by race. If you were a woman, your positions were restricted. If you're an immigrant, they didn't even want you in your church. I don't mean the Mexicans, which they also didn't want, but I mean the Swedes, the Finns, the Norwegians were not welcome in the established churches. And this revival somehow was able to say that even though the society structures were segregated, even though the society structures were divided by gender, 
Even though the society structures had an anti-immigrant sentiment, even though the society structures were against the poor, that this movement in an unlikely place that God would choose would not be like that. That the power to conform was resisted. And not only did they resist that power, but they were able to change it in their situations. They were able to create a movement where women could be leaders, where African Americans were leaders, where Latino, like Latinx, were leaders. They were able to create a movement that blacks were pastors and whites joined. They were able to create a movement that the Church of God in Christ and the Pentecostals of the world in the United States had all white congregations in their membership, not only in California, but in Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee in 1915 and 1920. They were able to create denominations where not only blacks and whites came together and you had the black people singing and the white people preaching. Where you had the black people as the minister of music and the white people as the pastor. But to create a church where black people were the bishops and white people were the pastors. Congregations that had black pastors, one in Los Angeles, had black, white, Filipino, and Latinx members. All by 1915. It was against the society. It was against the pressure. It was against the trend. But the power of the Holy Spirit, when it comes into the place, it does more than change your mind. It changes the world. Be ye not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Next slide, please. And so, therefore, I want us to now go to the text. I want us to see revival to revolution. I want us to see in text, chapter 6, verse 1, it tells us that there was an increase. Say increase. But in verse 7, it says there was a rapid increase. Say rapid increase. Now, I'll tell you, this didn't come from me, but I read it in preparation for today, that some people see increase by addition. And so the way the example that I read went, if you take the number one and add it to two, to three, to four, and go all the way up to 10, if you add all those numbers together, you'll end up with 55. But if you multiply those numbers, one times two, two times three, three times four, four times five, you'll end up with 3,600 and something. That's the way God works, that in verse 1, it was addition. In verse 7, it was multiplication. So all I need is 10 people from North Central. You can be students. You can be faculty. You can be staff. I don't care who you are. I just need 10 people and have a multiplier effect and see God move. Next slide, please. But at the heart of this, not only is the increase by addition, and then increase by multiplication. Next slide, please. But you'll see what happens between verses 2 and 6. I am so moved by this. I've been wrestling with this for, since, the, since COVID has happened, since 2020. And what I'm struck by, what I'm struck by, that if you look, that in verse 2, it is an Israel-born, Hebrew-speaking group of leaders who called apostles. And they ran the church. They did everything. They held all the power. It's a centralized structure. But notice, 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 notice that the other parts that you read, the issue was that the church was growing faster than the system. The church was growing faster than the structure. And so this apostle, this Hebrew-born 
this, this Israel-born, Hebrew-speaking set of apostles now had more responsibilities than they could handle. And I'm struck by it. I'm struck by it. I'm struck by it. That in verse 2, verse 1, it tells us. Some people say that the Hebrew, sorry, the Greek-speaking widows were overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Others say that they were neglected. And then one translation says they were discriminated against. Now, I know I lost you now. You don't want to talk about discrimination. Those who have been discriminated against, you try to forget it. Those who discriminate against other people, you try to forget it. But Acts chapter 6 is not afraid to tell the truth. Acts chapter 6 is willing to say discrimination occurred. These women were not getting the food they deserve. And then the, their, 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 their nephews, their uncles, because these are widows, the Greek-speaking men spoke up. And in King James Bible, it said they had a complaint. So they weren't afraid to, can I say the word, President? Protest. So they protested that the Hebrew, Greek-speaking widows who were born in the diaspora, born outside of Israel, were being discriminated against. And the apostles didn't shoot the messenger. The apostles didn't get mad and say, you're murmuring. No, they said, the problem is our structure, our ministry is too large for the structure we have. Next slide, please. And so what they end up doing then, they end up changing. Back to the other slide, I'm sorry. They end up changing then. And if you lead in the middle, they end up saying we're going to select seven. We now call them deacons. And they're going to create a church of apostles and deacons. But guess what? The apostles, as I said, are these Israel-born Hebrew-speaking Jews who are Christians. But the deacons are not their nephews. They're brothers. They're cousins. No, the deacons are immigrant-born. They're born in uh, Antioch or born in Ephesus or born in what's now Greece or Turkey. Um, they are immigrant-born Greek-speaking deacons. What that means is that they first were honest to say discrimination is occurring. Second, they're willing to accept the protest. Third, they said we need to change the structure. Fourth, when they change the structure in the words of the people of my mother's generation, they weren't going to let the fox be the one that protects the hen house. They were going to say, this system and this new structure is one that we're not just going to have deacons, but we're going to have deacons among the population that was discriminated against. They are the ones that are going to be the leader in the distribution of food for everybody. Next slide, please. So I want to wrap this up by then saying that's what the revolution, the Pentecostal revolution of William J. Seymour is. God said, I know the church is segregated. There's the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and then there's the Methodist Episcopal Church South. I know the church is segregated in 1906. I know that black people cannot be bishops in some churches, only can be members. And I know that in other churches, white people don't attend. That's a segregated church. But in the Pentecostal revival, God said, I'm going to send a revival, but I'm not going to merely let those on top run the revival. I'm going to let those who were discriminated against, marginalized, exercised, those are pushed on the outside. They're going to be the leaders of this movement. William Seymour, an African-American, the son of former slaves, is going to be the leader of this movement. Let's pray the next revival is the one that God calls. Next slide, please. And so, therefore, 
One of my colleagues from Ghana, he says it this way. Through its spirituality, Pentecostal religion has changed the way the Christian faith is expressed. How we worship, how we read the Bible, what we sing, and how we even live our lives. You can go to Episcopal Church in New Zealand, and they'll sound just like you're singing this morning. You can go to a Catholic church in Ghana, and they'll sound just like you're singing this morning. They'll sing like you. They'll pray like you. They'll praise God like you. Why? Because of the Pentecostal revival of William J. Seymour. But I want to say, I want to say, it's not enough just to copy our worship. It's not enough just to praise the Lord like we do. It's not enough just to merely pray like we do. But look at the second slide. It changed the way that we evangelize. It changed the way that we missionize. It changed the way that we theologize. It changed how we relate across races, classes, gender, ethnicities, and nationalities. That's Holy Ghost power. That's a Pentecostal revolution. That's saying, I'm not going to be the same, nor will I be like everybody else. I'm going to let God be the one in charge, and I'm going to go in the direction that God calls me to go. Last slide, please. So I want to end with a prayer. President Hagan is going to come and lead the altar call, but I want to end in prayer. I want you to join me, if you will, to pray for a new generation of William J. Seymour's, a new generation of Jenny Moore Seymour's, a new generation of people who don't merely want revival, but they want a Pentecostal revolution. Pray for people that were willing to say that we pray for a generation of change makers, culture shaping, history turning, planet shaking, and world impacting leaders. We pray for leaders that won't leave the world the same, but they'll change the world in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's all stand together, you guys.